It did what it did. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 229, is recorded live Thursday, February 12th, 2015. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson, joining you from the snow-recovered side of the state. A little bit of snow coming in. And joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing pretty good, thank you. Surviving the last uh, snow that we've been having all day today. Excellent. And then we also have uh, Jim, who this week won't be joining us. He's uh, preparing for a trip down to where the land is a little bit warmer. Or the water's a little bit warmer as well. So we had a pretty good week this week, I would say. We got a dive in this last weekend, which we'll be talking about a little bit later in the show. Always a great weekend when you can get a February dive in, at least up here in Michigan. And we are hitting the show season. It's starting to come on here. When When's the next show? Uh, World Underwater is the 28th for us. 28th. So. Saturday. It's actually a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but... I think those who are anticipating going for the afternoon are going to go on Saturday. Yeah, Saturday Saturday makes sense going. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. But just before we do that, I'd like to thank everybody who's showing up in the chat room. Nice to have a few people go in there. We have Surfer George is in there. Uh, Mitch also showed up again this time, and he, before the show, was telling me he's trying to get some friends to listen, which we always appreciate. Go out tell your friends about the show. Try to get them to listen. And I, I don't know. What do we have to have, like at least three episodes before uh, somebody could decide if they like the show or not? It seems that way. But occasionally we get comments either way. And the comments are always appreciated, no matter what they are. Yep. If you want to talk to us, you can send us an email at the show at scubaobsessed.com. And the way I say that probably makes it sound like there's a couple ats in there, but it's uh, the show, all one word, the at sign, scubaobsessed.com. And that will get to us. If it's an excellent review, then you can always leave it on iTunes, or we also take reviews on TalkShoe. So let's get back there again. The Costa Concordia, they finally uh, have sentenced the captain. Prosecutors uh, said that the captain should have saved everybody who was on the ship. The verdict in the 19-month-old trial uh, was expected this week. I thought it was already decided. It's already done, yes. Yeah, okay. I, I, that was about after we finished this one, go to the next thing. Yeah, I, I double-checked on it. So uh, he was sentenced with charges for manslaughter with 16 years in jail, which I actually, I think that's pretty light, wouldn't you say, 16 years? I was expected, yeah. Um, his his lawyer was glad, not glad, was um, pleased with it because it's 10 years less than they had anticipated. Yeah. Yeah, prosecutors... Uh, insisted that was reckless idiot and asked the court to sentence him to 26 years and three months in prison. You know, in the U.S., you can get that just for vehicular manslaughter. You can get that many years. Yeah. Now, I don't know how the the Italian systems are. If You know, do you serve all those years or do you get time off for good behavior? Because in the U.S., you know, even if you got 26, you wouldn't serve it in many cases. 
Yeah, but a car wreck with one or two people is totally different than 32, I would think. Oh, yeah. And, and you have a responsibility in the in the vessel of a boat. You've got training. Uh, and there's a whole lot more involved. So I would think he would have gotten a lot more. I mean, at least he got something. But I would have preferred to have seen a much stronger charge if everything that they said that we've heard in the media is true, which, you know, you don't you never aren't really sure how much of that is. It, it almost, you know, when you when you're sinking with or without the captain, you would think the other people would have responded in a a way maybe that would have minimized some of the thirty feet, thirty two people dying. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, in this day and age, to have what should have been a minor shipwreck turn out so bad is is unacceptable. Uh, one thing that his uh, lawyers had uh, complained about was that nobody from the cruise company's upper echelons was put on trial. Now, uh, I'm not sure about maritime law, but don't isn't there the law specifically designed to protect the owners of vessels? I, I really don't know there. I'm just, since it's several hours before it totally rolled over, I, I don't know why they could not have got, well, you know, 32 people out of what, 4,500? Yeah. And a couple of those that did get lost were in the innards of the ship, a couple of them were crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that's, I wasn't there. It, it still would be awkward. You know, where were the people who died? Yeah. And why weren't they, since it took several hours, why were they still? I would not, if I thought the ship was sinking, I think I'd get the hell out and get at least to something I could breathe air, you know, out to the side or the top part. Yeah. Yeah, you would want to get out. I mean, this just shows you that uh, any time a vessel like that starts to go, you need to get out as quickly as possible. And like I said, it was about 160 feet from shore, and I hope everybody had light vests. No, they're, they're supposed to. When you, And I'm sure it's the same over there as it is in the U.S. I think this is more of an international position. Mm-hmm. But when you get on a vessel the first, I think, four hours under sail, they have to have a training where everybody shows up on deck with life jackets, I believe. Yeah. I've never been on a cruise, so I can't say. You know, I haven't either. Um, I've been on a troop carrier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uncle Sam has his own type of cruising, doesn't he? (laughs) Yeah, it's basically there. If this goes off, get your jacket and get off the darn boat. (laughs) You you, you don't stand there on B-deck one or way down there in the bilges. You get out of the deep, dark spaces. Yeah. Yeah, get out. Well, we have a follow-up from last week's article on the, uh, the let's see what they call this, a Navy pier proposal. Port of Port Angeles uh, prefers different sites for mooring escort vessels. The port uh, has a berth for the Navy, especially if the port can assign it to its bunk. The Navy wants to moor escort craft carrier near the Coast Guard installation on Ed's Hook. The vessels accompany submarines from the naval base Kitsap, on Hood Canal to Pacific Ocean via the Strait of the uh, Juan de Fuca. Uh, a draft environmental assessment has been prepared for an estimated $16.7 million project to build a pier for berthing seven of these vessels. Public comment will be taken through February 25th in draft, which includes three alternatives. The transport protection system vessels uh, presently tie up to the uh, behind the security fences of the port, where the berths aren't occupied by commercial ships. According to the Port Commissioner Colleen uh, McAleer, 
They have been forced to moor elsewhere two to three times since they started escort duty in 2006. If their crews cannot rest, they violate Navy regulations. The new facility would include sleeping quarters for 20 to 30 personnel and a weapons magazine. The escorts would include a 250-foot blocking vessel, 87-foot patrol boat, 64- and 33-foot screening craft. So the, like we talked about last week, these vessels are just there for people who want to mess with the Navy. Yeah. Uh, the Navy has uh, proposed alternatives, building a new pier just east of the Puget Sound pilot station atop an artificial reef used by scuba divers, extending the current cutter dock at the Coast Guard base, officially called Air Station Sector Field Office, Port Angeles. And another one is constructing a uh, new pier near the top of the hook first choice would not only anger scuba divers, it would also force pilots to abandon their mo- their moorage from which boats, ferries, pilots to and from the ships around in and about Puget Sounds. As far as the reef, inadvertently created when boulders meant to armor Ed's hook were dumped 36 to 90 feet deep inside the split. Called it the only viable habitat for the marine organisms. So what's, what's that mean? They made a, an artificial reef by accident? It sounds like it to me. 35 to 90 feet deep. How do you accidentally drop? I don't think that was an accident. Well, it may have been an accident. It may not have been where they intended to put it, but I'm sure that's where they 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 ended up doing it. Well, 35 to 90 feet deep, that's quite interesting. That must be a heck of a slope out there. It would have been nice to see a uh, depth chart. Uh-huh. So if you're going to create a armor, so what they're saying is they're trying to make like a, a break wall. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that if you were coming in, you would hit the break wall before you got to the the other pier. I don't know that, or if it's just riprap to protect from our erosion yeah, and uh, weathering. Yeah, Native American tribes with treaty rights to nearby waters also have expressed concern, concern that pier construction and vessel traffic would disturb nearby eelgrass beds that shelter juvenile salmon. Now, see, that's what I want to see, too, is what is the depth of the eelgrass beds? Because here I'm talking, you know, 85, 90 feet. 35 to 9 is what they said was the, I mean, how, how deep does the eelgrass grow? I can't imagine it's past the uh, thermocline. No, I, I, there there are people who complain about everything and they're just going, they don't want anything. I mean, they're, I bet you if you got right down to it, there's a bunch of people who would like this whole base to go away from what it is now. And then if you did that, then you'd have some people who want to go back to nature and then you have a whole bunch of other people who want to put resorts out there. Well, you've got a hotel out there, and you've got your own private landing strip. Yeah. Pretty exclusive. The Navy has ignored the port's proposal in 2011 to more vessels at the port facility, port officials said. It doesn't involve the environmental risk and potential impacts. The Navy is supposed to go with existing options if possible. Losing the Navy's current arrangement would also cost the port about 85000 a year in rental income. The port has invested about 1,000 man-hours developing an alternative offer, according to McAleer. Just to let it go by would be a real shame, she said. And a proposal hadn't been passed by the Navy's line of command. We would build a building for them on the south side of Marine Drive. We had some good solutions for them. The decision-making never saw our solutions. Wow. That's that's a whole argument you don't even want to get into, isn't it? If some, <laughs> some, somebody, somebody's decided a long time ago what they're going to do, and the rest of this is just stuff that's in the way. Well, it's often been said, if it's not management's idea, it's not a good idea. True. That's why the best, the the smartest and brightest convinced management it was their idea. And And we have have the treasure hunter Tommy Thompson. Uh, He's the one who, what what was that 
was it the what's the name of that ship? Central America. The SS Central America. Yep, and three tons of gold. Three tons. So he had, is that how much they thought was on it or how much he had recovered? They brought up three tons of gold, silver, and artifacts. So three tons of gold, silver, and artifacts, and then he disappeared. Despite his early... And people who, who put money into it were a little upset. Yeah, I would be. I mean, you want to talk about one of the gutless things to do is to go take investors' money, bring everything up, you had enough money, you could have split that and still been okay, but you kept it all. And that makes it for the rest of us. Say we find a gold ship and we need investors. You know, that, that just makes it harder for everybody else. Well, he if you remember last week we talked about he was complaining, saying that he was allergic to things in Ohio, <laughs> like jail. Uh, Tommy Thompson agreed on Thursday to be returned to Columbus to face criminal contempt charges in federal court. He waived... An identity hearing, essentially admitting to that he was uh, Tommy Thompson. And UF Marshall's been hunting him for more than two years in a federal courtroom in West Palm Beach, Florida. That means Marshall's will return to him to Columbus within a few weeks. He was living at a Hilton Suite hotel in Boca Rotan when U.S. Marshals tracked him down on January 27th. They arrested him and his girlfriend, Allison Antikirier. The arrest and pending return to Ohio are just the latest chapter in Thompson's saga, which strikes back, stretches back to the 80s when he and his crew found the shipwreck. The SS Central America steamer brought up three tons of gold, silver, and artifacts. His problems have stemmed from that fine. Multiple business investors fought over the treasure in lengthy lawsuits that continue today. He and his uh, girlfriend are being sought to answer questions. In one of those lawsuits in late 2012, they disappeared. So he hasn't been disappeared that long then. No, that's what I was curious about is what about that interim? Because you're talking right. back about eighteen or nineteen eighties is when they were doing this, as I remember. Yeah, what what court wouldn't have seized all this stuff? I mean, the, um, it'd be interesting to see what was going on. So I I was thinking he'd been gone a lot longer, but he just disappeared in 2012. Well, the funny part about that, if you look at what they really said they did, it was sank in 18 AF 57, and they said it, you know they drowned 550 people on it. And according to what they wrote at that time, it was 30,000 pounds of gold. And it contributed to the Panic of 1857. Right. All right. Now, that's well and good. And it was a storm. It was a side wheeler, which is interesting from the aspect of what type of boat it was. But the interesting part, I thought, is they started their salvaging in this when they used ROVs in 1988. And they started bringing up artifacts and gold at that time. There were 39 insurance companies filed suit on that claiming they paid damages back in, 19, in the 19th century for the gold, and they had the right to it. And obviously, as a solver, you would say, hey, it's abandoned, which, you know, nobody, they didn't go out and look for it. So after the battle, you know, in the courts, they said 92% of the gold was to the team. And that was in 1996. Mm -hmm. In 2014, Odyssey Marine was awarded a contract to do some recovery and conservation of the remaining shipwreck. Right. Which is quite a depth down. It's like, how are you going to conserve something that that's far down? Well, it, I don't know why they say conserve. You're not. I, I don't either. But they said the value of the recovered gold was between 100 and 150 million. And they had a, one ingot alone was 80 pounds that sold for $8 million by itself. Nice. He started getting sued in 2005 because the investor did provide over $12.5 in financing. And then he got sued in 2006 by members of the crew. 
because of their lack of return for their investments. So all of that's happening, and you figure little by little, everybody's using the courts. And then he ditched out and got disappeared in 2012. So the question I would have is, where's the money? Yeah. It was, he had, I think, $400,000 on him or in cash, and that's how he stayed out of the limelight, off the, how they say, off the grid, yeah. by using cash. Yeah, he, he was paying for hotel rooms of cash, which right. I didn't think was legal. Oh, oh yeah, why well, can't you pay? Try, try it, yeah. Try, try going to your uh, Best Western uh, Courtyard by Marriott or anything and paying for the room in cash without presenting a credit card. In advance, why not? They won't do it. I, I haven't tried that, but I, to me, I, I'd say it was illegal since I have legal tender. Yeah, yeah, it's it would be a nice one to go try. That's that's one of those things where somebody needs to do a show and say how you go, because I have, I have been in situations where I didn't have a credit card at the time I was in a hotel room and... We had to come up with creative options to provide a credit card because they just weren't going to let it happen. I, I know it's awkward if you're trying to rent a car without one, but yeah. I again, if you've got the money, I don't know why you can't, especially yeah. if you pay in advance. Yeah, yeah, they just don't like to do it. Now, the, some of those that you pay by the hour, I, I think those might have a little bit different rules, though. Oh yeah. <laughs> so the couple paid in cash amounts as high as a thousand dollars at a time for a single room, and it was room two hundred, ranging. Uh, the rate ranged from 89 to 139 a night. On November 29th, 2013, they stopped paying occupancy and state taxes in the room and paid only a per-night charge. How does that work? What, well, you pay by the day? No, but they stopped paying occupancy and state taxes in the room. Does that, does that mean that they effectively paid for the whole tax in the room? Or was somebody doing something special for them? Don't know. The couple spent $29 on phone calls during their stay, with all but two calls made the cell phone of the hotel's van driver. The other two calls both made January to cell phone in Boca Raton. Uh, last year, uh, Antiquirier, and I'm probably not pronouncing her name correctly, reserved a second room for 41 nights from April 20th to May 31st. That reservation for room 600 was changed to a five-night stay on April 20th. The hotel documents did not say who stayed in the room. So I wonder when they say pay, stopped paying occupancy, if that means that they had reserved the room, but you only technically have to pay the tax if you're staying there on the site. So if I, yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking by reading through this that that's what they're getting at is is that the hotel didn't have to get the occupancy tax if you're not there, yeah. but they still had the room paid for. Uh, lawsuits were filed by investors to put millions into the search for shipwreck and didn't receive a penny after the treasure was sold. Yeah, I would think if you put that much money into it and you didn't get anything back, you'd be suing. Well, yeah, you've got to figure now. You're 160 miles offshore and over 7,000 feet of water. The technology involved in working that wreck is intense. They had over 1,000 hours of bottom time. Here's the key part. They only recorded 5% of the shipwreck site. And exploration was halted because of the lengthy legal battles, which means... You know, on one hand, I'm seeing 300,000 pounds of gold, and the other ones had 3,000 pounds, which is correct. And if they only did 5% of the wreck exploration, uh, I think there's some more money down there, guys. Well, and that's why the rights got uh, extended to the Odyssey to, to pull it up. The Odyssey has experience working at those type of depths. They did the uh, Garsopa and did that silver recovery, so they're in a position for it. And I hope they find it because I, I need some money back out of that stock. <laughs> now, obviously, Marine Exploration is who's doing it now. So yes. have you got money for them? Yeah, yeah. I, 
I own part of their stock, uh, enough to make it interesting, but not enough that if it goes to worth zero, I'm out. So you, know, you can my, basically say you, you it's like on the yeah. approach or something like that. Yeah, you know, I've got I've got enough. I, I mean, I, I've got enough shares to where it sounds a respectable amount, and but uh, you know, it's it's definitely less than one percent of my retirement savings. <laughs> so we call it play money. I had money in account and was moving stuff around, diversifying. I'm like, yeah, how many times do you get to do that? Wow. And, and it went up for about a month, and then it went way down since then. So I think I'm probably still, you know, probably lost about 10 20% on that deal. Well, I've not seen any activities they've done for 2015, but I just looked through 2014, and they've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 different operational reports, which means they were out there on those occasions. Yeah, they've they've got a lot of stuff. They've they've got a lot of uh, open, but not. I don't know what you call it. They've they'll go do some research. They'll verify the research, and after they went through that bad deal with the uh, with Spain taking all the gold back in the last one they found, they're doing extra diligence on making sure that if they recover something, they can get their money out of it. Uh huh. So that's what's going on is that they've got a lot booked, ready to go, uh, and they're just working through the court systems and getting everybody to sign off who could potentially come back after them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also got some assets that have to do with underwater mining, but those, they've done okay, but they're you know, they're still unproven. You know, nobody's out there, you know, mining platinum nuggets from the bottom of the ocean floor yet. Yeah. Did you uh, invest in 2014 or 2015? I was probably 2012, 2013. All right. The reason I say that, just to give you a, a key here, in uh, 2014, summer recovery work, which commenced in mid-April, during the five months of work, more than 15,000 silver and gold coins, 45 gold ingots, gold dust, nuggets, jewelry, and various artifacts were recovered. What? They didn't give me my cut. Twenty fourteen. That's what I'm saying. You need to be checking on that, buddy. Yeah, no, it's you might, you might be a millionaire. No, no, I, I'm I'm certainly not a millionaire. Well, I really I, kept hoping I I had some better numbers than I did the other day, and I don't live in Texas, and I don't live in Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, for the for what Max talking about is they had the Powerball, and at work they came around, and I wasn't paying any attention to it, and they said, "Hey, do you want to go in this week?" I'm like, "Nah." And then I saw how much it had gotten up to. Yeah. I'm like, shoot. <laughs> Half a billion? Yeah, yeah. I'll take that. Now, not that I was wishing my coworkers ill, but I did not want to be the uh, only one still working. <laughs> <laughs> the The office would have been lonely. There, uh, there was two of us in the North Building who didn't participate. So uh, I don't think two of us could have done the work about 50. And there seems to be the griffin in the news again. And it's going to be for a while now. Yeah, I bet you it will uh, continue every so many weeks. And I'm staring at my browser window because this darn site, I can tell, is going to try and play this video. Oh, it's like, I don't want to play your video. Oh, I hate you. I hate this. I'm going to hunt down the company who makes this. And I know who does it. So they're on my shit list. Uh, Which one are you looking for now? Which one are you on? The Greatest Mystery? Yeah, I'm I'm just looking, and they're talking about. Uh, I, I like to quote this one. Uh, I, I I said somebody needs to tell uh, Clive Custler about 
some of the stuff. And it says, Clive Cluster is recently quoted as saying, the Griffin, isn't that the shipwreck that somebody's been finding every 10 minutes? <laughs> and the Griffin was uh, LaSalle's ship from uh, 1643. Oh, LaSalle lived from 1643 to 1687. He wasn't that old of a guy. It went missing in December 1697. And since then, there's been 22 claims of discovery. All but three have been proven wrong. So Dean Anderson, the state archaeologist for the state of Michigan, uh, believes the long plank appears to be a fishing net stake. And that was the one that, that was the first one. Yeah. And I, I call that one's been proven wrong. Well, now that wasn't the first one, was it? Because that was, when was the fishnet one? The fishnet one was the one, that's two or three years ago, isn't it? Well, one of them was in 2001. And that's when Steve Leibert of Great Lake Shipwreck Hunter and president of Great Lakes Exploration Group. Yeah. They claimed they found in 2001 in northern Lake Michigan near Poverty Island. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's the one I think they're talking about. Okay. That's the one with the alleged bow spirit, which some people live as a, yeah. a net state. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the one that just recently happened was Kevin Dystra and Frederick Monroe. Right. Uh, treasure hunters from Muskegon went public with their claim. They discovered the Griffin in December 2014. The duo said they accidentally found the ship while diving near Frankfurt, Michigan in 2011 while searching for the lost Confederate gold treasure they believed was pushed off a boxcar in Lake Michigan. While diving the site, Dester took a photo of maybe a wooden carving in the bow of a shipwreck, completely covered with multiple layers of zebra mussels. He believes the wooden carving is shaped like a griffin, a mytho mythological beast that had the body of a lion and the head of an eagle. The state is now planning to dive the shipwreck discovered by Dystra and Monroe later this year to fully examine, hopefully determine its identity. The two claims remain inconclusive. They said there's also an interesting claim by a lighthouse keeper in a Canadian island in Lake Huron in 1898, developed in the Griffin claim that is yet to be put to rest. Authors of maritime historians Chris Cole and Joan Forsberg recently published a book entitled Wreck of the Griffin, The Greatest Mystery of the Great Lakes. The authors had spent over two decades comprehensively researching the Griffin from both historical perspective and what they may have led to the demise, hoping to revive the conversation, perhaps re-ask the 336-year-old question, what happened to Robert D. LaSalle's elusive vessel? Not only is the Griffin the most hunted ship in the Great Lakes, is the most found ship on the Great Lakes. When it comes to this little approximately 500, not 500, 50-foot-long ship, one thing that seems to remain common over the centuries since it went missing, old stories and theories never die. A man claimed that the wreck in a cove claimed that a wreck in a cove near where he lived was the Griffin. This is according to Fosberg. After he passed away, the words founder of the Griffin were carved on his gravestone. There's a family who was digging in their backyard, and they claimed they found the Griffin, except that it turned out to be a bridge abutment. <laughs> I think the clue there would have been backyard. Yeah. Well, and then he talks about one where he says his favorite story ever was that divers who'd found the, who thought they had found the wooden vessel that claimed was the Griffin, but it ended up being a steel dumpster. Why would you just normally assume that everything you found is the Griffin? The problem Hopeful, is. Wishful thinking. Yeah. Well, the problem is the size of it. You think of how many small boats there are that have been lost in Lake Michigan in the last 300 years. And there's probably several thousand that are in that length. I use the figure 3,000 minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, LaSalle was hoping to find a way to China, uh, and the Griffin was part of his uh, use of the fur trade that he had purchased rights to. 
Now, the Griffin was made over in the Niagara area. See, I don't know why I was thinking that it was over by Green Bay it got built, but it was from Niagara and then went to Green Bay, and then he loaded up and sent it back, and then it disappeared. Five crewmen uh, began making the way across Lake Michigan heading towards Niagara. They sailed away northeast and were never seen again. Nobody knows what happened. In 1898, uh, Albert Cullis was a lighthouse keeper at the, gosh, Mississauga Strait Lighthouse. Did I say that right? You're not asking me. <laughs> Mississauga uh, Strait is a narrow strait on the Canadian side of Lake Huron, connecting the North Channel to the main body of water, separating uh, Manitoulin Island from Cockburn Island. One day, the lighthouse keeper was in the woods near Lighthouse, located near an old beach shipwreck. He found a cave inside the cave with four skeletons. One of the skeletons was gigantic. The skull was huge. And this is significant because one of the crew that LaSalle had was a, a seven-foot-tall man. So they're speculating that, that because the skull was big that, that it could have been him. Lucas, the pilot of the Griffin, was reportedly a huge man. Uh, Collis went back to the lighthouse, got his assistant to come back with him uh, to check out what he had found. The two would locate another cave with two skeletons. That makes six bodies. There are the six crews of the Griffin. Uh, the question was raised, could the old beached shipwreck and the six skeletons be connected in some way? Lighthouse keeper Collis had never heard of the Griffin, according to uh, Forsberg. Collis and his assistants decided to explore further and started digging in what else they might find. They found a watch that was ultimately dated to the 1600s in French design. They found a military-style buttons. They found tokens. The fur traders, when they sold their pelt, instead of getting coin in the, of the realm, they would get something called tokens. Thirty years had passed before anybody considered the straight, that the straight shipwreck could possibly be the Griffin, according to Fosberg and Cole's book. In 1927, the gentleman named Harry Tucker, a lawyer from Owen Sound, Ontario, believed the shipwreck was the Griffin. He managed to get several journalists to investigate. The journalist denounced his claim, saying the wreckage appeared to be modern due to the presence of threaded nuts and bolts. Despite the pushback from the media and the Canadian authorities, Tucker continued to make strides to support his contention to the shipwreck was the Griffin before his death in 1929. And then in the uh, from the 30s to the 50s, a teacher from Ottawa named Roy Fleming extended the investigation where he believed the Griffin, um, he, he said several of the boats gathered from the wreck on the uh, Manitoulin Island were eventually said to sent to France to be examined. The place they were sent to the laboratory determined the bolts. Uh, this wrought iron was made using a process that was not used after 1750. There were no ships after the Griffin for 80 years, so how could the hardware have been made later? Also, timbers tested to be old enough to be made of, of white oak found on the Niagara area, but things you just can't get around this ship as they found the beach had uh, lead caulking. Whoever heard of lead caulking? Well, the French lab had. The t um, today, the Manitoulin Island is bare. Unfortunately, the wreck isn't on the beach anymore. It got washed out in 1942. Most of the artifacts had been destroyed or lost. The skeletons are gone. The watch is gone. The tokens are gone. Brass buttons are gone. So none of this can be tested anymore. Some of the artifacts did survive. However, the iron bolts, several, some timbers, and the lead caulking, these artifacts can be found today at the museum. We're hoping that they can do more testing on those artifacts, said uh, Forsberg. Let's test them with 2015 methods and let's see. It's interesting. We still forget, though, that when that was built, that was built in the wilderness. It was not built in a shipyard. So from that aspect, having an available metal like that, I did not believe was feasible. Didn't sound like they used that kind of stuff back then. Strictly technology and the tools and cutting lumber on site. 
What I think is interesting is if you look under the where they talked about the rumors, legends, and speculation, mm-hmm. uh, there are three main conjectures about the fate of the, well, the Griffin. Number one was that the Indians captured the crew and burned the ship. And I, that would make sense to me. The other one was the ship went down in a sudden storm. And the third is the Griffin crew mutinied, scuttled the ship, and kept the load of furs. And there is some seeming support for the aspect about two of the possibilities, about the sudden storm sinking it and a crew mutiny based on reports from Indians. Uh, LaSalle had, you know, went up looking for his boat and it talked about uh, LaSalle's letters wrote, the Indians saw a, a bark tossed about in such an extraordinary way that they could not weather the storm. Although they had cut down all the sails a short time later, they lost sight of it, as reported by the Indians. Then, that, then another part was two years later, LaSalle learned information from a young Pana Indian who had served as a translator, and he'd said he had seen the Le Griffin pilot, or captain, and another Frenchman brought to the village by Sioux warriors. According to this witness, as recorded in LaSalle's letters, ship and crew survived the storm because the boat was up against the shoreline. The crew did scuttle the ship, taking a cargo of furs, and subsequently the captain and other Frenchman tried to make their way west, were captured by the Sioux Indians, and that's the end of them. So it's interesting when you start tossing in reports from the Indians back in that time. Yeah, and we've seen in other cases where the Indian reports have been uh, downplayed and they ended up being exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And it gives a little bit like it could have been on shore and then sank and scuttled. Well, what does that mean? That meant it was, you know, up impacted on the shore, but you did something to it to make it sink more which means it could have been off off one of the islands. Well, and, yeah, 300 and, years ago, this is freaking wilderness, people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, we, we would call it a rainforest. It was just full giant trees, uh, old, you know, old growth. You know, that was one thing I was thinking about is, you know, if a ship, a ship watched, washed up on shore, wouldn't you use the resources? Sure you would, and that's what they did. Yeah, so you've got some beams, you got, you know, if there was glass, if there was other things. Uh, and, and I think kind of comes back to, would anybody have the cannon? Well, that's the key to me is, one, that's a bartering item. Right. And I think three of them, two of them, two of them were supposed to be like brass, and those are rail cannons. So it's, it's hard to believe somebody would not have utilized those if it was not sunk or scuttled, and they were trying to escape with the furs because yeah. troping across the, you know, the forest with a, a large, not a large, but a, you know, a rail cannon, it's going to be heavy. Well, you think about the cannon. So at that point in time, 300 years ago, the cannon would have been unique. So if it had, you would have kept that. At what point in time would it have been, it could have been forgotten, you know, if a if a village had just died out, you know, that could be in the ground somewhere waiting to be discovered. Or at some point in time, somebody melted it down in a in some metal drive, not realizing what they had. Yeah. But I think if you had the two brass, they're going to be ornate. Those would be quite interesting. Yeah, I would. Uh, I, I mean, if I was working at a salvage yard and something like that came in, you'd you'd find a way of of saying, "Hey, what? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll give you twenty bucks for that, or you know, yeah. five cents, well, whatever the appropriate amount is at the time." As a side note, though, what you said is interesting. Um, obviously, the the brass cannons they cost more than the regular cannons. But once the other cannons were, were fired enough times, and that's only a couple of hundred times, as I understand, back for those days, there were nothing, they weren't good for anything except uh, using for a junk anchor. 
Yeah. Whereas the brass, you could always melt it down because the value of the material was still there. Mm-hmm. And you could recast something out. Yeah. But the cannon to me would be the proof. Yeah. Obviously, the figurehead would too. Yeah. And, and that figurehead I saw in the photos, that was a really nice conditioned figurehead. Yeah. Which well, makes. Well, that was from an old woodcut where that came from. So what it really looked like, gosh knows. Yeah. Yeah. So that I. I'm thinking they've got another vessel, or they could even have a modern-day reproduction that sank. And I don't think somebody was reproducing the Griffin. I just think it was somebody. I mean, a figureheads that's a lot of effort to go and put a figurehead on a boat. What amazes me is the craftsmanship that they had 300 years ago that we find hard to replicate today. And yeah. they did it with hands, hands yeah. and hand tools. Yeah. Take a look at some of the old boats. I mean, and I'm talking the galleons and stuff like that, the figureheads and how they made them. That was freaking awesome. Yeah. Well, here's another shipwreck where I expect you to say, what's the return on investment? This one's out of Greece. Let's see. I'm a, how, how can I slaughter this name? Zexinothos. Zexinothos? Zexinothos? <laughs> a famous shipwreck on the Navigio Beach is to be fenced. The famous shipwreck has become a landmark for the popular beach on the Greek island. It's about to receive a facelift if the municipality authorities' proposals go through. The island's mayor is considering to implement a conservation program for the eroding vessel as well as fencing in to limit access to beachgoers who are responsible for some of the damage. The municipality is earmarking about 25,000 to 30,000 euros, but also seeking cooperation with people from the private sector who have experience in the field. They say the plan includes hiring a guard who will supervise the wreck when the beachgoers are present, adding a portable chemical toilet, and if possible, hiring a lifeguard. And I'm looking at that photo, and that's just a an old, that was a junk boat that blew in, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, here, here, uh, let's, let's oh, crud. Close the window down. i got to find it. Have you got a picture of it on your on that section you just had? Well, they had one. It's a, it was a big zoomed out image of of it so i'm going to try and do a, a search see if we can I'm find looking it. For it yeah i was looking at a different site from greek i can't read greek though <laughs> what you can't read greek uh it's greek to me man here let's look at the one of the travel okay the one i'm looking at if that's the greek one that's a steel hull freighter sitting on the beach with tons of people yeah yeah, so it's discovered in 1893. I don't know how you can not discover it in 1893. Give me a break. Or 1883. Sorry about that. It, it's not that it was discovered. Somebody just reported it because they were making something out of it. Now, how are you going to protect that, and why? Well, yeah, I'm looking at it. That's just a that's a junk wreck that flew in in a storm. Yeah, well, it, it it's become it's it's a good photo op. Yes. And people have come to that beach that would not normally come. I mean, yeah. that part of the world, all the beaches are beautiful. <laughs> so everybody needs a gimmick, and this happens to be this beach's gimmick. Yeah, they were saying uh, it was also known as Smuggler's Cove, where it's at. It's supposed, it's supposed to be one of the most visited sites on Zante and the most photographed beach. It's only accessible from the water. Yeah, so it gives somebody an excuse to charge you a lot of money to be shuttled out there. It gives you an attraction to look at, not just the beach. But we have a shipwreck there. I'd go look at it. Yeah, if I was there. I mean, if you have a choice of a boring old sandy beach or one with a shipwreck, yep. yeah, you want to do the shipwreck. I would. Well, how's this for finding some old archival footage? 
Uh, we're we're now on a hundred years since the uh, tragedy. Passenger oh, ship geez. carrying twenty five hundred people rolled over in Chicago River in nineteen fifteen. Those on board scrambled to the climb on the side ship. Rescue workers and volunteers tried to save them, but uh, hundreds drowned. That was the SSS Eastland. Yeah, the Eastland. 1915. And uh, what the Eastland was doing, it was holding a Western Electric workers and their families party. So it was like a company picnic on the boat. Actually, there were three boats involved, by the way. And you know yep. where they were going to take the boat trip to? Uh, Michigan City. Michigan City. Yes. And uh, one of the steam engines my father is working on at the Heston Steam Museum was built by people who most likely died in this accident. It was a Western Electric uh, steam engine and a generator. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, yep, the, that's the, the department that lost a lot of people. Wow. Uh, but there were some interesting parts if you read about the people who died and how that affected the politics in Chicago. That's a whole separate story. Oh. It is really interesting. Yeah, because you think about it. At that time, this is one of the, this is this is before the Titanic, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So well, no, it's it's the greatest wreck we've had, loss of life in Lake Michigan. But it's really not considered that because it was still at the dock. Yeah, yeah. And and what happened was uh, the vessel was at the dock and. Uh, and, and some of the articles go into detail. It was just a combination of errors. It was a poor design of a boat. It was top-heavy. They had unloaded all the, the ballast earlier in the day. Uh, things had been moved to make it even more top-heavy. And then everybody on board decided to go <laughs> look at something, went over to the side of the vessel, and it, it, it tipped over. And they've known for a long time that there was probably film footage of it, these are the early days of uh, uh, moving pictures. And you, they had still photos where they could see uh, motion picture cameras in the shot. So they knew that the, the photos were being taken. This uh, recovered film footage was in a museum in uh, the Netherlands. And apparently they knew they had it. They just didn't think that anybody was looking for it. That's amazing. So this is an intern. Was it an intern? Or grad student, I guess, is the PhD technical. candidate, 43-year-old Jeff Nichols. Yeah, so Jeff Nichols, digging through some stuff, went and found it. So they expect that there's more of them. And did you actually watch the video? Yeah, I went through it. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's good. And it's weird because everybody that you're watching is dead. Yeah. By the way, this is three years after the Titanic. Three years after the Titanic. Three okay. years after, yeah. Titanic was uh, 1912. Okay. Yeah, that that's right. I I knew it was somewhere close to that. Yeah. You but, know what you know how Paul Harvey used to say and now the other side of the story? Yeah. You realize what happened to that ship, right? What that they scrapped it up? Yeah. Well you know how you know what it turned out to be? What? The USS Wilmette. When they brought it up, got it righted and again got all the bodies off because there's still bodies. One of the first items they had was they could not keep night watchmen on it because it was haunted. It, it drove people to distraction, to say the least. Uh -huh. They'd be there, and people in dress would walk by these night watchmen, and it would freak them out really bad. And they had thought about making it back into another passenger ship, but what they did is sold it to the United States Navy. And what the Navy did is they made a warship out of it called the USS Wilmette. Does that bring any bells with you? It sounds familiar. Why does it sound oh, familiar? The USS Wilmette is the ship that sank the UC-97 German mine layer 
off of Chicago in uh, 1921. Yes, it was not uncommon to take vessels of this era, uh, take them down about to the waterline and put new superstructures on, re-engineer them. But it, it was quite interesting because the other aspect, and depending on which one you read, when they raised this particular boat, the Eastland, the first claim was quite interesting what they said they discovered under it. Yeah, and, I remember that one. And what was it? It was a submarine. A submarine. That really piqued my curiosity, so I had researched that. And there was, in fact, a submarine recovered, but it was not under that vessel. It was basically several blocks down. But oh, so the, the that was was a, an embellished story then? Yes, yeah. Oh, because as the story, as, as I heard it, is that they were – they went to run the cable underneath it to help write it, and they ran into something. And then when a diver went down and found it, uh, they discovered the submarine was there. Right. And if you looked at the submarine, it, it, it was it's quite interesting. It looks like the same vintage that was made. Well, actually, the first submarine Lake Michigan was built in. Any idea? Uh, that would be New Buffalo. Michigan City. Michigan City. Yes. And actually, he, the gentleman there built, he used to be a shoemaker turned engineer, and he actually built three of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the one that was recovered out of Chicago looks suspiciously like boat number two, if you look at the drawings generated by this gentleman. Mm -hmm. And actually, the Navy had plans for it, and I got the plans for the version three, which are quite interesting. Version one looks a lot like uh, the one they have down in Charleston used by the Confederates. The Huntley yep. looks like that. Looks like a long tube, pointed ends, crank type propeller. But it's still interesting of how rumors get started and how they're embellished. And then a hundred years later, you're wondering, well, I heard there was a submarine under this. That yeah. Was interesting. Was yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and I'd like to have. Yeah. You, know, you hope that history kind of comes back and corrects itself, and then adds it, keeps that supporting information connected to it. Well, I, I, on that program I give, uh, I was given to the next ones up at um, the Powerboat Squadrons up in Muskegon. Mm -hmm. I modified my program to uh, add some history of that in there because we talked about the East one. And I actually found some pictures of them taking that sub out of the, out of the uh, river north of where this was at. It's quite interesting. And looking at what the circus people, basically, they sold it to a circus and they took it out and put it on display. It cost you a nickel to look at it. And then 20 or 30 years later, it's like, where did they put it when they finished with it? Some say they put it back in the river. No. I, I'm thinking that the thing, you know, a lot of stuff, you leave it in the water and it breaks down a little bit. You take it out of the water and it breaks down a lot. So I'm sure what happened, it was on the back of a trailer. They had a tarp on it. You know, it, guys got tired of hauling it around. And the third time you visit uh, Kansas City in a year, everybody's yeah. already seen it. So it probably parked in some lot somebody went never went back to pick it up and it just got salvaged or you know some somebody's probably playing on it or parking over it and i don't have any idea what it is well it's, it's interesting from that aspect looking local you know where our ship canal is right now correct uh the, the one under the parking lot <laughs> well the ship canal goes back back behind where whirlpool is and back where bm is yep. and that only goes back to the first street now but it used to go all the way back down downtown Benton Harbor, and where that big parking lot is used to be the turnaround yeah. for ships such as the Chikora. Yes. Then they said, well, we need it for parking because we have so many people down there, so they filled it in, made a parking lot out of it. Yeah. And, of course, we know the history of Benton Harbor. Yeah. yeah what do you need parking for in a ghost town? Yeah. Yeah, well, well that, uh, that... Is, to, is to dig it out again. 
I'd like to see them dig it out again. That's what they want to do now. Except they need to have something where they got some good water flow, because from what I understood is that was never the best waterway. <laughs> it was like there's a little trickle that resembled sewage that would flow out there, and then that was basically a ditch that went to Water Street. Yeah, except they did enhance it. They did widen it um, maybe 20 or 30 years after they dug it the first time. And they were talking about getting some kind of circulation system to do just what you said is because it was almost like a deadhead mm -hmm. to cut into the Pawpaw River that feeds into it, only feed it backwards so it would flow, the Pawpaw River would flow at the back end of it and then flush it out towards the river. Oh, that would be nice. They could do that today. Well, if, if you look, we have been changing the, the structure of rivers for a long time. We look at all these old plat maps, and that St. Joe River there had three canals that they had cut into it. You know, you had mills. In fact, I just found a couple weeks ago, not more than uh, two blocks from where I live right now, there was an old uh, grain mill. And, you know, we're near the river. You know, maybe you, know, you can see the river from spots along the road. And you see this creek, and this creek has this, it's its a waterfall that maybe is three or four feet drop. And you can see that there's some old stonework there. But there was a huge, you know, mill, you know, 20, 30 feet tall that was there. And this is a postcard, and it shows it when the structure was still there, but definitely in disrepair. So we had a lot of those type of structures. That was the early power before we had uh, electricity and steam engines. Almost every community had one. If they had any kind of stream or water system through it, they had they took advantage of the the power that the stream can generate and yeah. had mills of various types everywhere. Almost every community had one. Yeah. I found a whole listing of old mills and locations from 200 years ago from Michigan. Yeah. Well, there's there's one my, my parents' house which is also here in town, there's a creek called Lemon Creek that goes behind them and probably 700 yards upstream from where they are was another area that was dammed and there were a couple mills there. So any place, like you said, they had water, somebody put in a mill. So water was important. Yeah, it's just, it's it's unbelievable how much in the short time the our, our state has been here. Well, you know, look at the water tables. And we have been sucking water out, paving everything, that our water table has gone down tremendously. Look at the old pictures of Benton Harbor, St. Joe, just 150 years ago. There was so much swamp and lowlands that are now, when you start digging in there, it wouldn't surprise me that if you were to dig up an old house, meaning log cabin. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, like where uh, Tuscornia Park is, you know, one of the biggest motels that rivaled the ones at Mackinac was called the tavern that was on the bluff there. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine having a building as big as the hotel at Mackinac on that bluff? Yeah, unbelievable. It's, it's hard to imagine. And no clue, no, people now have no clue that 100 years ago, that was a huge, huge area Yeah, and populated. Yeah, well, and, and things come and go and in a favor and out of favor. Yeah. Those things are expensive to maintain, so they went away. But yeah, I love that. I love all that stuff. I just hope that we have it documented and in, in forms that we can get to because I, I just I, I can burn through a weekend getting sucked in on some of those websites you know some of the some of the state libraries then university libraries yeah. have done a good job of digitizing that information it's there for the pickings the University of Michigan has a nice archive that you can go into and you can pull all those books so that's the Eastland 100 yep. years ago the last survivor of that wreck 
died in November of 2014. Huh. 102 years old, so she must have been a, just a baby at the time. Yeah. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. Um, if you're listening to the show, there's a few different ways you can listen to us. You can subscribe on iTunes, or you can pick up the feed directly from TalkShoe. We are show 73759. We are also on WRVO Radio, the WRVO uh, radio network. So you search for WRVO, you can uh, pick up, tune in, or you can download the, the WRVO radio outdoor app and listen to us. And I believe Thursdays, uh, not Thursdays, Fridays is the feed they've been playing us recently. And we did get some diving in this weekend. The Mud Club decided to take advantage of the weather and the ice, and we headed up to Lake 16 to get an ice dive in. And we had five divers. We had Mac, Jim Schultz, uh, Ted, and... Uh, Kevin. Kevin. Kevin and myself. So there was five of us, which I think is... is a good amount. It'd be nice to have more, but five is a comfortable amount. I mean, you can do it with, we've done ice dives with three or four, but that's really too few. But five is, is, is a good amount. Two of them are new ice drivers. Uh, Kevin and Ted hadn't done an ice dive before. So we went through the, uh, the process, you know, briefed them on how to do it and got an ice dive in. At first I was a little bit nervous about the water. The air temperature had been above freezing for two or three days at that point, and it was uh, 36 degrees on Sunday when we went. Uh, you walked out on the on the ice, and there was slush an inch and a half. Now, there was no popping or cracking, but uh, when we took the ice bud in some holes that had already been knocked in, it only looked like it was about three or four inches. Uh, Jim Schultz went and cut the required triangle uh, next to where it looked like we had cut the last one uh, a month earlier. And what, what what was the depth of the ice? It was about six inches clear, two inches frosted? Yeah, we had uh, actually, yeah, six inches of clear, two inches of frosted, and then you had that good two inches of water and slush. Yeah, and that, and that's good. That's a good amount. We didn't, we didn't have the ice deflect quite as much when you only have four to five inches, which was good. Well, we didn't have the weight like we normally do because we didn't have as many people. No, no, we didn't have as many people. Um, but we... We thought we were pretty close to the platform, but we never found the platform. I think we were a little deep of it, Mac. You know, looking at, uh, so Jim Schultz cut the hole and he went down, was going to try and run a line down from the from the surface to the platform. Correct. Uh, but didn't didn't find the platform. Visibility appeared to be about 25 feet. Laterally. Laterally. I, mean, I could, from the, from the hole up, we could carry you. I could still see you until you hit the 25-foot marker, then you got really black. Yeah. But down below, I could be on the down line that I found and took some pictures of. And looking on my back up, I could see the hole very easily. Yeah, it was dark and it was overcast. It was it was not a bright, sunny day. And that definitely affected how far you could see. We, I did shovel the, you know, a mostly wagon wheel. There's a few spokes missing, but we had most of it. I wasn't going to fall through ice trying to hit some of those spokes. Well, we did cheat a little bit. We had a snowblower. <laughs> yeah, we did the snowblower. That was nice. Yeah, somebody brought a, uh, uh, it was Ted. He had the, the powered snowblower that was self-propelled, you know, metal. It was a, that was a nice one. And uh, he did two passes with it out to the hole and back. Yeah, near the hole. Not, not. We were probably a good 25 feet from the hole because we didn't want to 
create any more issues than we already were. Yeah, yeah, but it, that that definitely made a nice haul in the gear out. It's it's two to three trips out for each diver to get all your gear out, which is a pain. That's one of the that's one of the downsides of ice diving. And you've got your gear, your dry suit, your regulators, your tank, weights, warming Shelter. water, shelters, shelters. Yeah, uh, we threw the heater in the. Uh, there's a Lake 16 has an outhouse or a pit toilet, and that's where the heater was thrown. But then Kevin also brought a shanty that he used, and that came out with us in the ice. But uh, I didn't see the stop sign, but you saw the stop sign and put pictures up and took pictures up. And I think that stop sign is on the chain to the platform. No, that's the plant. That's that one is separate. It's got buoys at the top of it. That's if you came off the platform and you were going out towards the lake uh-huh. and followed, if you went down the legs and followed the lines out to the boats and stuff, uh-huh. you'll, you'll hit a boat. Then you follow the line out from it and it starts going deeper. And that's where the tech divers start going because now you're talking really dark, really black, and you're not going to do that in the ice. No, no, that's that's not a good ice dive situation. And basically, we're saying, hey, you go past this, you are really venturing out into no man's land, basically. Oh, okay. Because I was just, when I saw that, I saw, uh, looking back at that photo, it's a stop sign on a chain. Right. And I was I was thinking, well, the platform's suspended from chain, augered into the bottom. But that's not it then, huh? No, that's not it because above it, there are several canisters like uh, LP gas bottles holding that up. Now, if you're on the platform and you go towards shore, off to the right, you'll find another sign. Okay. But when I went down, I was off to the side that I could actually see the clay. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a nice reflection back that I could actually see something. But uh, we were we were out further to the uh, southwest. We could have been in, like where the where the debris was. If we'd have gone on the other side of the debris and then down, I think we'd have been really close to the platform. Yeah, yeah. But, but my, my yeah, my goal was to get in the water, get used to ice diving in a dry suit, and see what I could see. And I I, I thought it was pretty successful. I wasn't cold. You know, why, why didn't somebody tell me about this dry suit diving sooner? Uh, well, as we always say, we normally don't want to do two new things at any one time with any person, meaning yeah. you've never dry, dove a dry suit and you have driven a dove a dry suit before. Yes. Yeah, this I've, is I've, just a different one for Yeah, you. this is, no, this is the one I've been diving. This right. is probably my, oh, maybe 10th, 15th. Oh, I've had over 10 dives in it, so. You normally don't want to do two brand new things every time you dive. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do your first ice dive, that should not be your first dry suit dive. Yeah, you I should agree. have experience before you do that. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, my weight was a little bit different, but it was it was about perfect. I I was it was good for an ice dive. Yeah, I was a touch heavy, which I didn't mind, but I also had to take off because Jim needed a clip on uh, two pound, so I took it off my belt and gave it to him. So I knew I was going to be a little bit lighter. Either a two four pounder I gave him. I can't remember, but uh, yeah, it it was nice. I went down. I was able to go down. I got to a point where I figured I had to be close to the bottom. And the battery on my my uh, depth gauge, my computer was was blinking at me, so I didn't have a really good depth reading. But I was, pro- I imagine, just from looking up, I was about thirty some feet deep. Uh, yeah, and, for anybody interested, though, if they go to last month's Ice Dive, we have good video. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the platform and telephone booth, which is basically a, a floating chamber that you can duck your head into and talk to each other underwater. 
uh, you can see good shots of that, and that'll give you a perspective where we're talking. And if you did check the, the pictures, at least you'll see us popping around on the surface, and then you'll see a picture or two of the uh, of what little visibility we did have that day. Yeah. And that was a blind dive for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they did that before. So we've we've got uh, for the muddies. The muddies got their ice dives in for the year. Uh, did you notice anything unusual on the dive? Anything unusual? Not unusual. Expect. I mean, we had five out and five out, and that's a key item. Yeah, that's that's good. So if you come out with the same number that went in, uh, yeah, that's 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 really what you you strive for. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was successful. Yeah, but the temperature did drop. We, uh, in addition to being very overcast, it went from 36 degrees when we started and got to the lake site. We were there for about four hours on the ice outside, and when we left, it was about 26 degrees. Yeah, and the wind had picked up. Oh, yeah. It, we had no wind in the beginning, and it was, wasn't was gusty, but it was a, it was a good, good brisk breeze had picked up. And then I think the most challenge was getting out of the parking lot. Uh, yeah, for me, that's why I, I made sure I had that knee knocker on the back of my my car because I knew I was going to get stuck getting out. And yeah. you guys had the everybody brings a cable with you. Yep. So we're able to just throw my butt back out that last four foot. Yeah, you, everybody you, had a truck except me. Yeah, you, you almost had it. I think it was just the the snowplow pack there at the entrance that got you. Yeah. But a uh, nice dive. So um, if you haven't had a chance should- to do an ice dive, I recommend it. Yeah, and we should have an opportunity in a couple more days. It's supposed to be uh, four degrees or something this weekend. Oh yeah, the, the the high, the highest four degrees. The highest four, and there's supposed to be a um, a dive, an ice dive, sponsored by the safety dive team. And I saw it on Facebook. I made a note saying, "Hey, is that open to anybody?" And I haven't heard whether it is or does not. <laughs> and if it is, I want to go up there and dive with them. I would dive with them. And I found an invite for people. They do a annual ice dive, monster ice dive in Minnesota. And uh, we're talking six feet deep of of ice. Yes. And last year's participation, get this, was 745 divers. Whoa. Yes. That would be so awesome. Well, that'd be awesome. But I have an idea that it takes quite a bit of effort to cut through that much ice. So once somebody has a hole open, you're using it. Could you imagine six feet of ice? Yeah, you're not cutting it with one chainsaw. Let me clear you. Yeah, well, and you also have to have a ladder mounted. Well, what they had is because they were bringing, they were cutting big cubes out and hauling the cubes out. Oh, so they were. You're talking some really clear ice. It was beautiful. Nice. And I went to an ice fishing one also from up in the north. My God, it looked like a carnival on the ice. They had trailers. But again, you're talking several feet thick. But I swear there's 2,000 people on that uh, section of ice with trailers, house trailers. I mean, house trailer buildings. I'll have to give you a picture. It was awesome. I want to go up there. I want to get. I've seen a uh, drawing of the old, uh, like, ice cage, and they show photos of you know what's safe on the ice, and it was it's probably a wood cutting or something from the turn of the century. And there gets to be a point where they've got everybody out there, including Clydesdales and beer wagons. I think is a final photo. I've got a. I, I need to find one of those. You're here for the beer wagon. Yes. <laughs> Well, in um, well earlier uh, was it earlier this year? Yeah, it's been this year. Uh, we were at Paw Paw at the museum, and that was a major industry for Michigan. A lot of these inland lakes was ice. They would take the ice, cut it in blocks, store it in the ice houses, and they would ship it all over the world. At one point in time, ice was the top export of the United States. 
What's amazing, though, is every every lake I know of has the rumor of there's a Model T out there that went through the ice, number one. And number two, the second most popular is a team of horses dragging ice back went down. Yep. And I've still not found my Model T nor my horse bones. Yeah. Well, you also have the, the house that has been towed across the lake. I think every lake has one of those. True, but those we have found. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the reason was is that probably there are cases that at every lake over the course of 20 to 30 years that happens. You know, somebody, you know, the horses, somebody was trying to cheat, cross the lake, and if you've got a current or something and you got a weak spot, they go through. And then there's probably some numbskull who leaves his Model T out on the ice for whatever reason and that falls in. I mean, ice shanties, how many ice shanties are there at the bottom of any lake? Not as many as there used to be. No. They, we have found them out there in Pawpaw, but I haven't found any new ones because you got to tag them now and you get fined if you don't. Yep. And they're pretty, they're getting really picky about that. Yeah, you have to have your name on them, and I think they probably, somebody must be policing that ahead of time, saying, hey, do you, you realize your shanty's out here? Yeah. So what's the next dive? You said, the, the, the what's the one for the safety divers? That was supposed to be this weekend, so I was hoping I'd get a response back, because I'd like to go to that. Yeah, I, I'm guessing that nobody wanted to take a position on that. But that had been good. I thought about, even if I couldn't dive, I might go just to watch a different group do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see what the because that's one thing that you have to say for them is they've got good protocols. And I was thinking that this last weekend, you know, just all the you know if you're going to do it formally, all the different steps. You know, of course they've got comms and communication to the surface. Well, there's there's some good manuals out there, and and they differentiate tremendously between recreation, safety, and commercial or professional. It, it's different because. Like when we do recreational, we go out because we want to. We pick the date, we pick the time, we pick the place. Right. Safety divers, it's like you've got a time limit. It's either rescue or recovery. It could be any place. So they can't pre-stage, pre-plan the way we can. So there are rules that they really have to enforce are a lot more stringent than we. Well, I shouldn't say that, though. They, they do it different than us, even, and even though safety is paramount. But they do do it different, and they do use different equipment, such as comms and many instances yeah. that we do. Yeah, I I like to think that we've got a pretty good procedure that we're doing. I've thought about brushing up and taking one of the classes just to get the C card because some of these uh, other quarries in the area are requiring that you have their certification if you're going to do the, their ice dives. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's you like, don't I stand on that one. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I'm I'm the same way. It's like I've got a choice. I can buy more gear or I can pay you to train me something that I know how to do. <laughs> or you can go out with groups who do it all the time yeah. and make sure you don't get damned or damaged. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we do. We babysit the new guys because that's our job. And it's fun to watch them get in, have a great time, and come out with bragging rights and I survived the nice dive. Yeah. Because oh, it looks more dangerous than it is. To the novice. Yeah, and that reminds me, I need to change my Facebook profile. If you if you want to have the ultimate awesome Facebook profile page, you have somebody take your photo when you're in a cut a hole in the ice, and that just I mean that that's I think that's got to be like as far as on the manly scale, that's up there and that's in like a nine or a ten ice diving. It's definitely different. It's it's an enclosed space. People don't realize, but I mean. Enclosed space should say something to you. Alternate air sources are really necessary. Oh, yes. you got to back up, though. If you're doing cave, cavern, if yeah. you're doing penetrations in a wreck, you just did the same thing. You went inside. You don't have direct access back out. 
you got to take different precautions to make sure you can get back out. And if you have a problem, how do I how do I survive this problem if I'm in an enclosed area and don't have direct access? Yeah, yeah, you, you certainly have to make sure that you can get out, have the proper uh, preparations, proper training, the experience, redundancy. It all plays a factor in there. Right. I, I mean, I still remember my first ice dive. It was definitely a lessons learned, and some of the lessons where I won't do this part again. <laughs> so, what was what's one thing that you did different this last ice dive versus your first? Uh, I had better equipment. I had bailouts, and I knew how to use them. I had dry suit. Uh, back, and you're talking a long time ago, back in the early seventies. I was on a line, and we back then we went further than we should have. I was 150 foot out on a line, which is not normal for recreational. And my regulator stopped. The new ones will free flow because the way their balance mechanism, the old ones could, when you took a breath and you inhaled, when you exhaled, it would stop, and you could there was no more air. Yeah, that's that wouldn't be nice. And back then we did not carry bailouts. So you better have a damn good tender when you're out there yanking on the line like, pull my butt back in now, please. And I take it your tender did? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and I was also helping out by pulling myself up, too. (laughs) Yeah, you want to do that. Because you've now, your regulator stopped functioning on your exhale. Yeah, yeah. But little little tricks you learn, though, really early is, one, if you do give out of air, you have a problem, you get to the surface under the ice. And you know why, of course, right? Yeah. Takes less air to breathe. I got more air the higher I am up if I have air. The other item is you can be pulling me in pretty quick. The other aspect that ice diving, you know, like on the pictures you see, Jim, there is a safety diver. Yeah. When we're doing novices, we normally put one person in, 50 foot of line. If you want to go straight down, great. You want to go lateral, great. 50 foot. Safety diver, if you come unhooked, first cardinal rule is don't go dorking around. You go straight to the surface and stay there. You got plenty of air. Safety diver goes in because the, the, the tender is going to say, I got slack line. Pull it in. It's like, oh, sh-, you know what I mean. Yep. Safety diver goes in. He goes out 100 feet. Goes straight out on the surf, under the under the ice. Then he does a 360. If you stayed where you were, you're within 50 foot of the hole. He's going to make an arc. That rope is going to come right by you. You're going to grab it and boogie back on him. Yes. And that's why you don't have the divers out further than the safety rope. Yes. But again, if you didn't know that and you're going to look around for your way back, you can get yourself screwed up really quick. Oh, yeah. You could easily get, if you've come off a line, it doesn't take long to get farther than any line that we would throw in to look for you. And if you didn't have the wagon wheels to help you out, we didn't have good sunlight penetration, there's techniques you can use to help you. But the key item is keeping your head, knowing that if you did have a problem like that, you go to the surface under the ice, stop there, and that safety diver is going to find you. But, yeah, great great time doing a nice dive. So hopefully we have an opportunity for at least one more before the season's done. Yep. I'm looking forward for the river. Woo-hoo. For the river? Oh, hell yeah. What, do you want to do a nice dive in the river? No, 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 no. Too much current. That's not a good place for a Oh, dive. okay. I, that's, again, differentiation between rescue and uh Yeah. And yeah. The, the rescue ice divers may have to do a river. We can avoid it. Yeah, the protocol there is a little bit different because... Yeah, current, you don't want to mess around with under the X. Been there, done that, it ain't a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you want to be you want to be sucking at your gut real quick, get under the ice without a line Ooh. from a shore dive, have ice flow move over you, 
And then yeah. you bump your head and say, what the heck? It does not take. I remember when we did the dive at Pawpaw Lake. That was kind of like a shore ice dive. We were tethered. Yeah. Yes. But uh, did some playing under the ice. And the ice seemed to be less than a half inch thick. And you could not break through that from underneath. Yeah. From underneath, you cannot normally break through an inch of ice. Yeah. Unless. Because you have no purchase. Yeah. If, if you were in shallow and you could get a good push off like the boat ramp. Then you could, but to just be out and deep and under the ice, you could not break through a half inch. Yeah, and your snorkel is not going to help you. No, no, Kevin with his snorkel. <laughs> well, I mean, the fun part about that is that we had those ice fishermen. You've never done it, but we have. You find an ice fisherman, and you make your hole near him because, you know, you like a little friendliness, yeah. that's like Singer Lake, actually. Yep. And then you sort of measure off how far it is in the angle, and you go down under the ice, and you go find his hole. Oh, man, I want to do that so bad. Take your hand up out and wave at him and pop that back down. That guy will freak out. I I want to do that. What I want to do is have somebody on the inside. We set up some GoPro cameras inside the shanty, you know, something that maybe the guy wouldn't notice. Like maybe you invite your friend into your shanty, and we do that and just watch him fill his pants. Well, what you do, there's like my GoPro on a stick, you know. I'm under oh. the hole. I stick that up. I'll have his first, you know, oh, first wow. impression. And you, I'm going to have to do that this year. That would be cool. Oh, yeah. We got we got to put the GoPro in a stick. We could put like a little, uh, you, you put like a creature from the wet lagoon or black lagoon head on top of it. Oh, yeah. And then you just have like cut out for the mouth. You could have the camera. And you pop up the hole and just... You got to make sure you've got that camera secured because if that guy gets that camera, <laughs> you're not getting it back. I will guarantee you that if you're sitting in a relatively dark enclosure fishing at a hole and a head comes popping up, <laughs> your reaction is not going to be going towards it. It's going to be backing away from it. Oh. The only other thing you want to do is have your oxygen and your AED with you because when they have that cardiac on you, you want to yeah. bring them back to now, life. Now, does your ice shanty... Does it have the floor that lifts up? Yeah, I have uh, sections I can go ahead and take the bottom out and fish through if I want it. Yeah, because I'm almost wondering if you could do it. Like the, the trick would be to do it and not have anybody know that there's divers there. So you could go through the hole in the bottom of the shanty. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah the holes I have are not that big, but you could do that. Yeah. Huh. Uh, that, 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 that's next year. We're going we're gonna to have to set that up. We'll have to get with like the steelheaders or something, find some of the old guys there and say, hey, you got somebody you want to pull a prank on? <laughs> There's some mean guys out there that do oh, that. That'd be, that. That's like a three million hits on YouTube. Oh. Oh, man. Yeah, because if was, you... I was looking at some ice diving today in the Antarctic, and they are making a manhole hole that, you know, big enough for you plus a little bit. You uh-huh. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Snuggy. And uh, they're dropping through six-plus feet of ice to get to the open water. Yeah. That's got to be a freaking trip. That would be. Yeah, I, I've seen some of those... Uh... You know, National Geographic where they have those guys and they're doing the underwater. Or how about the ones where they were doing the, uh, we, I think we had a vi- we had the video on it a few years ago. I'll have to look it up. I bet we still have it. Where they were doing the tidal areas where the tide would go out. So you'd end up with an air gap under the ice. Yeah. So they were cutting through the ice, dropping a ladder down, collecting all the sea creatures that were just flopping around in the ground under the ice. And then trying to get back in before the water came in. The ones I liked was the video of the guys with the shovel and the wheelbarrow. 
and they were upside down on the ice, and the air bubbles was captured yes. in the dumpster. So when they poured it, it looked like they were going to pour out sand. They'd be pouring out the air, which would then go to the top of the ice. And look, it, it was awesome. I'll have to find that video for you. Yeah, that was the... Those guys were really, really good. That was Norway. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that uh, on, when we were diving on Sunday. And that that is hardcore. We have taken tricycles under there and skis back in the older days. Yeah, because I, I was just trying to think of how I would you know, because mentally, you, you, yeah, I'm all positioned you know, to, to right yourself to where your feet are touching the ice and you are standing up. I've never done that with a dry suit. I've done it with my wetsuit. I've done so it with I'm my wetsuit as well. Out, my buoyancy issues would be different with that. Well, I would just think that your your feet would, would just fill up with air and it could be a situation there. Well, I got those straps on mine now to help yeah. minimize that. Yeah, plus I, I tend to... I. I don't put, have a lot of air in my dry suit anyway. Even this weekend, I didn't. Well, I think we're to that time of the show. Are you ready? Yep, yep. I think we've been running off into mouth. At least I have. Yeah, we we're we're gonna we're gonna hit. We're well over an hour. Yeah. So here we have one. This is another one from Rod. He's saving me from having to look too hard. A young Scottish lad and lass were sitting on a low wall, holding hands, gazing out over the lock. Several minutes they sat silently. Then finally the girl looked at the boy and said, A pin here for your thoughts, Angus. Well, uh, I was thinking perhaps it's about time for a wee kiss. The girl blushed, then leaned over and kissed him lightly on the cheek. Then he blushed. The two turned again and gazed out over the lock. Minutes passed and the girl spoke again. Another penny for your thoughts, Angus. Well, um, I was thinking perhaps now about time for a wee cuddle. The girl blushed and leaned in and cuddled with him a few seconds. Then he blushed. Then the two turned once again and gazed out over the lock. After a while, again, she said, Another penny for your thoughts, Angus. Well, um, I was thinking perhaps about time I put my hand on your leg. The girl blushed and took his hand and put it on her knee. Then he blushed. The, t the two turned once again to gaze over the lock and spoke again. Another penny for your thoughts, Angus. The young man glanced with a furrowed brow. Well, no, he said. My thoughts are a wee bit more serious this time. Really, the girl said with a whisper, filling with anticipation. Aye, said the lad, noting, nodding. The girl looked away, and shyness began to blush, bit her lip in anticipation for the ultimate request. And he said, don't you think it's about time you paid me my three pennies? <laughs> I think that's called killing the mood. Yeah, yeah. Just like a man. So that, that's that's uh, in honor of Valentine's Day. So uh, you should go out and take your girlfriend's scuba diving. That's a, what I think is the ultimate Valentine's Day gift. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Recording has ended. Or not. I don't know. I hit the required buttons. Maybe. would come back and say that? Yeah. It's about 50-50 now. Huh. I guess that was it. <laughs> it did what it did.